Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, May the 1st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On this May Day, I'm joined by two Irish Times comrades, our political editor Pat Leahy and political correspondent Harry McGee. And later, we will be discussing the early rounds of this month's Euro and local elections. But first, Amanda Ferguson joins us to give us a northern perspective. Amanda Ferguson, we're nearly two weeks after the murder of Lyra McKee now. What's the situation politically in in Derry, I suppose, particularly for uh, Sarah, which is the political wing of the new IRA and the new IRA itself? Well, I think everybody was quite taken aback by the the protest that Lyra McKee's friends um, uh, staged outside the Junior McDade house in Derry when they put the red... um, palm prints, the hand prints on, on the side of the building. I think that was has been one of the most effective protests I've seen in a long time. And I know that Sarah has been given notice to quit the building um, by the by the landlords. So they'll be looking for, for new premises. But certainly the, the context of, of Lyra's tragic death, we know that um, dissidents have a, a variety of reasons why um, they want to target and go after the police. And I think that, um, that their statements from the weekend just show that they're using Brexit as an excuse to to capitalise on it as such. And is it anything more than just an excuse when they make their statements afterwards? In other words, has it given them an opportunity that wasn't there previously in terms of gaining more support? Not electoral support, obviously, because they make clear they don't care about that, but support on the ground from disaffected young people in uh, in areas like Craigan. Well, I think that whenever you look at the, at, the, at the appeal of dissidents as such, they're small in number and resource and support. Um, and I think that the, the economic scenario, the disadvantage within the Northwest and the, and the fact that it's been kind of um, left to the side and hasn't really seen the peace dividend um, means that uh, vulnerable young people are at risk of being groomed. And I think that's why you can see support from, from young people who didn't know uh, the troubles and didn't know the, you know, the conflict they have. They won't have seen um, that sort of violence. So I think that they're, they're easy targets to try to, um, you know, to, to, to manipulate. But I can't imagine that there'll be huge uh, increases um, in, in support for them, uh, particularly in, in the light of, of Lyra's murder. Because sometimes events like these can have a, you know, a negative effect on these kinds of organisations. I mean, the most obvious example was OMA, which really set back the um, the the continuity IRA as it was and the 32 county sovereignty movement sort of set them back when they were they seemed to be on the up at that point but but both the the security forces which were arrayed against them and the revulsion against the act kind of you know put put a stop to that to some extent well, I think you know Syria would be regarded as as their political wing. Obviously, they they reject that suggestion, but uh, you know I think it's it's pretty clear that they they are linked to them um, anyway, and they would certainly um, don't stand in elections, don't want to stand in elections. But I think that could would be because they know that they wouldn't do particularly well anyway. Um, I don't think that. Uh, uh, the you know support for them is going to increase off the back of this just because of the widespread you know uh, local national international attention that's been focused on it and certainly the the activities of, of Syria are going to be disrupted now um, if they're going to have to move out of their building um, within Derry but you know as you said the, the, the apologies have been issued um, but I don't think um, anybody uh, pays too much attention to those I think um, 
uh, Charlie Flanagan had sort of summed it up that it was, um, you know, it was an outrage or it was a, it was a offensive that to offer this sort of mealy mouthed apology in the light of what had happened. Harry, you talked a couple of months back on this podcast to Marissa McGlinchey, who's written a major book about dissident Republicans, although I think she doesn't call them dissident Republicans. She points out that they see themselves as being in a direct line of continuity from the various Republican paramilitary movements going back for 100 years or more. Yeah, she traced the um, Republican, the dissident Republican movement from 1986 when there was a big split in Sinn Féin and Rory O'Brady and his uh, colleagues walked out from the mansion house in Dublin uh, to form Republican Sinn Féin. So she's looked at all the groups that have emerged since then. Interestingly, she didn't look at the INLA, which I always considered to be a, a dissident group, a, a, a splinter group, uh, because that she said that had been formed in a different context. Because but, it came originally, the theology of this, it came from the official IRA and the, the sticky side of the argument. And yeah, that, that's as, as, as opposed to mm. from, from the uh, provisional side of the argument. So she's looked at all the different groups that have emerged since then. There's been quite a few and CIRA and the new IRA are but the latest iteration. We've had the real IRA, the continuity IRA. Uh, we've had a couple of political movements, Republican Sinn Féin, uh, the 32-county uh, Sovereignty uh, Committee. Uh, we have had uh, IRIGI, uh, which uh, has uh, emerged, and then a few other groups uh, that uh, contain a mix of... Uh, of traditional Republicans, those who have been there for 40 or 50 years, who reject... Um, the ceasefire, reject the Good Friday Agreement, uh, reject the direction the provosts have taken uh, since the mid-1980s onwards. And then you have a new strain of radical, young radical people, some of them, as we saw with Syrah in Derry, who were born after the ceasefire and indeed after the Good Friday Agreement, uh, who uh, have uh, just a very different ideological worldview uh, than Sinn Féin have nowadays. And then there are other categories who would be kind of maverick, uh, independent socialists, those who are against, who are Republicans, but against Sinn Féin and who may not uh, favour a violence uh, solution. So it's a very interesting and comprehensive book that takes in this very diverse uh, cast of uh, characters. But there were a few things that struck me uh, when reading the book and when interviewing uh, Marissa McGlinchey. The first is that they have no democratic legitimacy and none of these groups have an electoral mandate. Now, one or two have stood as independent candidates um, in the North uh, successfully, uh, but Irigi, for example, have no mandate in the South. Sierra uh, doesn't want to stand in elections. The 32-county Sovereignty Committee doesn't want to stand in elections. And we have one or two uh, Republican Sinn Féin councillors. Uh, there's a guy called Tommaso Curran in, in Spitdale and there's another guy down in Cork. Um, both of those are... Um, traditionalists and I think have been elected because of the dint of their own personality and their own local work uh, rather than because of the brand um, they represent. And interestingly, um, you know, when they were asked why they weren't standing for elections, uh, one of the principals in the 32-county sovereignty committee said, why should we stand for elections? We'll just be humiliated by the provost. It won't do us any good in terms of confidence. So when they look to legitimacy, they, they, they claim... Uh, two or three uh, sources of legitimacy. The first is a long tradition of armed Republican struggle uh, going back to Wolf Tone and even uh, beyond that. The second is a 1916 rising, uh, which was not a popular rising at the time it happened, uh, but afterwards um, um, uh, gained uh, uh, popularity. And uh, the third thing is that they have looked at a couple of uh, surveys. There's a guy called Jonathan Tong, who's an academic in QUB, 
who did a survey looking at sentiment uh, amongst the nationalist community. And there was a, about 12% uh, of that community who expressed support uh, for the views and ideals uh, of the dissidents. But that doesn't, that's not tantamount to them saying that they support them. I think that there would be some support for some of their views. Uh, but uh, I think Tong was very careful in terms of the work that he did uh, to say that that support for the views of some of the dissident uh, did not and there are, and there equate are, with, with, view, and, with actual support. And there are them. quite a few people in Mercer McGlinchey's book who are opposed to the current Sinn Féin policy, who are opposed to their strategy, but who don't necessarily support the kind of the kind of activities which uh, which the new IRA or other paramilitaries. The, there are, but the majority do support armed struggle and to get the Brits out, to put it, to reduce it to its uh, most uh, basic form. Uh, and some would still use that kind of um, formula that there's no uh, legitimate place for any British uh, soldier or any uh, British administration in Ireland. And it's essentially reduced to that among some some of more subtle ar- arguments. And CIRA is, is relatively new. I mean, it's only been around for two or three years and it has a couple of pers- powerful personalities involved in it. But again, it has no democratic or, ele- or electoral franchise uh, or mandate and doesn't seek one. And you kind of wonder what kind of legitimacy it has. And what happened in Derry, uh, as uh, as um, was pointed out a little earlier uh, by Amanda, was uh, extraordinary. You saw the the, uh, sh- the shrine of Derry. You were now entering Free Dar- Derry and you saw somebody had the temerity uh, and the courage to, to daub graffiti on it, uh, to say, not, not in my name. And that, to me, was extraordinary and it shows you uh, how much... Uh, thinking has uh, evolved amongst at least a, a section of the community and the nationalist community. Uh, they're not all added them anymore in terms of their views in the future. Amanda, how striking do you think that was, the kind of graffiti and the, the defacing, I suppose, of pro-NURA murals and graffiti in Derry and then the protest with the red hands? Is that sort of unprecedented in Derry? I think that, you know, obviously Derry is, is the city of protest, but I think that the, those were particularly effective types of protests. I know like, in the past um, that that graffiti wouldn't have been touched um, for fear um, of, of someone who ever did it getting into trouble. So I think there was a sort of rebellion and a kickback against what had happened just because what had happened was so tragic and so appalling. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that the, the you know, the, the dissidents are going to, um, you know, represent widespread Republican opinion isn't true. Like the majority of Republicans in the, the north know that the route to a new Ireland or to Irish unity or however you want to describe it is through the ballot box and you know the, the this is sort of yesterday's idea this is a this is a, a campaign that isn't going to get widespread um, support from anybody uh, speaking of the ballot box obviously we're in the midst both north and south of election camp- campaigns both local elections and European elections now what's the mood about those where you are Oh, a decade in journalism, journalism has finally got to me. Um, in terms of the, the, the talks to kickstart Stormont, I don't really hold out much hope. Um, and regarding the, the council elections, I think it'll just be the, the same as usual, that the, the majority of the electorate um, row in behind the two main parties. It's so same old sectarian headcount, essentially. Well, to an extent, yes. You know, I think that that's the problem with, with, with the North in terms of it doesn't really matter what your policies are. You know, you have to nail your colours to the mast to a certain extent, uh, which is why the sort of middle ground parties only only sort of um, have um, a certain am- amount of support. And I think that the the election material that we've seen from the DUP and Sinn Féin is, is what, what you would expect. The DUP talks about the threat to the union. The Sinn Féin talks about Irish unity. And, it's you know, that's not about collecting bins 
questions or um, you know any issues that the council might be responsible for. So I think that from here on in elections, um, as, as they usually are, are just going to be about um, people um, highlighting their positions. And I think a lot of the reason um, why people will vote in the council elections will be on uh, party stance on Stormont issues, which are, aren't within councillors' gift to, to sort out. Yeah, Pat, uh, Amanda mentioned the political process, which the government's, I think, used the phrase kick-started. It's a fairly hefty kick, but not much sign of a start. Well, they gave it a kick, Uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. As to whether it starts or not, we're told that the talks are likely to start uh, next week. That's certainly what the Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister said yesterday. But uh, according to Sinn Féin, they haven't received any formal notice of where the talks are taking place, when they're on, what the duration is going to be, what the agenda will be, how they're going to work and so forth. Though um, Irish government people that I was talking to last night would suggest that, look, that's kind of bunkum. They know they'll be in Stormont House. They know they'll take place next week. They'll turn up, you know. Um, I, I, I don't get a sense uh, of great optimism uh, in Sinn Féin at least uh, about the outcome of of the talks, both last Friday and again yesterday, Mary Lou Macdonald came out to say that uh, if the government, if the the you know Sinn Fein will of course take place in the or take part in the talks, but if they don't succeed, the governments have to have a plan B. And so every time Sinn Fein says that it will take part in the talks and it wants the talks to work. It also says there has to be a plan for when they fail, uh, suggesting, uh, I, I think, a good deal of pessimism about that within Sinn Féin. I don't see it's it's plan B. The preferred Sinn Féin plan B is that the British government, it says the two governments, but it actually means the British government legislating at Westminster for what it calls the equality agenda an Irish Language Act, same-sex marriage, abortion rights in uh, in in the north. Now, so, so Sinn Fein is looking for a direct rule uh, on these issues. On those issues, y- yes, yeah. it is. And of course, Sinn Fein doesn't deny the irony of that. It could hardly. I made the point in the in a piece this morning that you know whatever you may say uh, may say about that, it's not very self-determinationy. Now, is it? But um, I I think Sinn Féin accepts that. I think it's part of a sort of a framing exercise that the party wants to do to pin the blame on the DUP for uh, for lack of movement uh, in the north. Amanda, I'll come back to you in a second on this, but I just want to push Pat on one point. What's in it for everybody in this? It seems to me that, first of all, the Irish government needs to be seen to be doing something. So they're doing this kickstart process without any great expectations of an outcome. But because if we're moving inexorably, possibly towards some form of direct rule, the government has to be seen to have been trying to to resist that happening. Starting a political process in the weeks before local and European elections with the state, with two weak leaders of the two main parties in the the north, um, there, there can be no prospect at all of a successful outcome of any sort, however you might characterize it. It's, it's, almost entirely performative this isn't it I, I i get little sense of optimism from any quarter but i do get a sense that people had to be seen to try and do something well, exactly. and it's not as you point out it's not an especially propitious moment quite the contrary for uh, for talks given the current climate given the prevailing distractions 
at West uh, at Westminster. So now I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which uh, NIO officials and uh, and Irish government officials have been trying to put together the pathway that and don't forget there was almost a deal in place last year to uh, resuscitate the power sharing institutions that fell at the last minute basically uh, I think because uh, because Arlene Foster couldn't sell it to the DUP. Now the you can look at that one of two ways. The way Sinn Féin looks at it, it's because uh, Arlene Foster uh, hadn't lined her DUP ducks in a row, hadn't was unwilling to stake, you know, to expend her political capital in bringing her own side uh, on board, which is classically what any leader has to do in these sort of negotiations. From the DUP side, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, they would look at it and say, that class of a deal with its the concessions that it entails is simply unacceptable to our membership and we have to deal with that so a different deal is um, a different deal is necessary i see no sign of movement in that position and i certainly see no sign of movement in the Sinn Féin position and, and amanda just to add to that to add with all the unpropitious circumstances which pat has outlined there you have the fact that Arlene Foster is seen in many quarters as a dead woman walking, that the cash for Ash report will come out. And there seems to be a widespread expectation that that's going to be the end of her. Well, there's never a good time to have talks in the North. But what we have to look at is that the two main parties, to borrow a phrase from Theresa May, nothing has changed. Their positions are exactly the same as they were before. The DUP wants Stormont restored immediately and talks in parallel Sinn Féin wants progress on the outstanding issues and if the DUP can't move on it, they want the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, the two governments, to take uh, control of things. The problem that we have is that with regard to the rights-based issues around, as you said, Irish language, same-sex marriage, women's reproductive rights, at the moment... Scotland, England, Wales and the rest of Ireland have access to all those things, but British and Irish citizens in Northern Ireland or the North, however you view this place, don't. So it's hard to see how that could be negotiated. You know, it's hard to see how um, it could be sustainable for that to continue. Um, so, I, you know, I find it difficult to see, you know, given the the sort of re- the red lines, as, as they're called, that the, the two parties have put down, um, how there could be movement in, in these talks. And as you said, after a local government election and before a possible European election, it's not exactly the best time to be doing this, but uh, the two governments had to be seen to be doing something in, in the aftermath of, of Lyra McKee's death. And, you know, arguably they should have done something months ago and they've had plenty of opportunities to do things because, you know, when you think over over 24 uh, months, you know, I think we're into toddler time, it's 27, 28 months, something like that. Like what other region of the UK or Ireland would that be sustainable that you could go without a devolved government? It's, it's, it's outrageous, like. Can I ask you one other thing? It just strikes me looking at the current political landscape at, at the moment in Northern Ireland. The, um, in the course of the peace process, particularly at the outset, there was an analysis of the troubles as they had panned out, which looked at them as partly an expression of a certain kind of misogyny and patriarchal society in Northern Ireland in terms of its leadership, to the extent that there was actually a specific political party which had some electoral success representing the interests of women. And a lot of the issues that you've talked about there pertain to reproductive rights and the rights of rights of women in, in various ways. And I look at the situation right now and you have Michelle O'Neill leading Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. Um, you, you hear increasing mutterings about the fact that she was... You 
you've always seen her being analysed to some extent as a figurehead with the quote-unquote hard men somewhere behind pulling the strings. You have Arlene Foster at the head of the DUP and also a kind of a sense that she's not up to the job and we need to put, you know, a man in a grey suit, largely Jeffrey Donaldson, in there instead. Is there a lingering, uh, or maybe not just lingering, is there is there still a bit of patriarchy going on there? Oh, definitely. Without without shadow of a doubt, uh, the North is a really male society. It's a very male dominated society. Even though we have seen, um, you know, women take the the leadership of, of political parties, Naomi Long and Claire Bailey for the Greens as well. Um, I think that one of the problems um, regarding uh, Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster is that people do move to sort of um, sexist arguments um, whenever they're criticising them, even though the, the, you know there are valid criticisms um, of them in their own right that have nothing to do with uh, them being women. But I think it's a, it's a little bit unfair to say uh, that Michelle O'Neill is a puppet, as she's described, or that Arlene Foster is controlled uh, entirely you know, by, by, by the men in the background of her party. Um, I don't think that, that that is accurate, but certainly um, you, know, you talk to anybody in Northern society, um, the, the, the society does feel very male it does feel um you know it does feel that way and i think that perhaps um if more women like the women's coalition that you were you were referencing there if we'd had more women involved in an earlier um point maybe we wouldn't be in the pickle that we are now amanda thanks very much indeed for joining us today you're listening to the irish times so pat as i said there are elections in the north there are elections in the south there are elections everywhere they work somewhat differently down here than they do up there um you've been doing constituency profiles on the euros this week in the newspaper looking at dublin and at uh, ireland south um so far i was interested in your dublin one you were essentially seem to me to be saying there's one fina gale there's probably one fina fall and then there's a fight between all shades of the left, including Sinn Féin, who are well positioned yes. for the for the fi- for the final two seats. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, campaigns are really only cranking into gear this week, um, and will probably be interrupted a bit for the bank holiday weekend. So you come back next week, and there'll be a three week uh, campaign, which is pretty uh, pretty brief. Now we have an absence of constituency specific. Polling Certainly parties will have done some private polling, but my general rule on referring to that is uh, show me the data and let me talk to the pollster before I'll report on it. Because don't, is- don't trust the lying bastards, I think, is, is the <laughs> short version. Yeah. You, might put it like, uh, you might put it like that. So, yeah, I, I, I have um, – I've been looking – First of Dublin today, today's paper at uh, South Constituency. We'll look at the remaining tomorrow. M- yeah, my sense about Dublin, as, uh, as as you mentioned, is that there has to be a Fine Gael seat there uh, that will be taken by Francis Fitzgerald. There is probably a Fianna Fáil seat there. And while the party has some enduring weakness in Dublin, it's running just one candidate, I think probably has a sufficient base of support and is running a sufficiently well-known candidate to suck in some transfers to restore that traditional Fianna Fáil seat so, there. So, the other so, so sorry, just to yeah. dig, dig into that, it's a, it's a four-seater, so the, I mean, notionally the quota is going to be 20% of the vote. A party or a candidate who gets somewhere approaching 15% of the vote in the first preferences is almost certainly going to get elected. Is that the kind of the mathematics we're talking yeah, about here? It, well, it is. I mean, if you get 15% unless you are quite transfer repellent, then you uh, you should certainly, if you're 15% the first count, you should certainly be elected. Um, 
more interesting then when you get candidates on 10, 11, 12, 13 uh, percent on the first count. Their goal then will be to just stay ahead of the other candidates in that bracket, stay alive in the race long enough because there's, I think, 19 candidates uh, in it. About half of them will be uh, will be competitive and have votes to uh, will have votes. So to being distribute. transfer friendly is absolutely crucial. And we know from previous elections that the Greens, for example, are more yeah. transfer friendly than some other small parties. Yeah, that's right. So last time when it was only a three seater, Eamon Ryan almost got elected. And that was in 2014 at a time when, you know, the Greens were still, I suppose, recovering from that very bruising time they had in government during the financial crisis. So uh, I think you know, there is reasons for hope uh, amongst the Greens that Kieran Cuff might take a seat. I think he's still at this point is probably fifth in the race. He's probably behind Sinn Féin, Lynn Boyan, who got a very strong vote in Dublin last time. Sort of a sense that that might recede a little this time. It would be a disaster for them, though. It would be an absolute disaster for Sinn Féin to lose their Dublin seat and they could afford to shed a lot of votes and still win that seat, which uh, is what I think is... Uh, is likely to happen. Uh, Claire Daly, also running, will be a very strong independent candidate. We'll need to get up, I think, you know, above 10, 12 percent on the uh, on the first count to stay in the race to suck in those transfers uh, from around the place. So I think at the moment, this at the starting point, what it probably looks like to me is uh, certainly one Fianna Gael seat, probably one Fianna Fáil seat, two left-wing seats currently likely to be uh, won by Claire Daly and uh, and Lynn Boylan with Kieran Cuff challenging and very possibly taking one of those last three seats, possibly the Fianna Fáil one. So a lot, of, a lot of the action there, Harry, would be around you're going to have a cluster of candidates mostly on the left who aren't really vying for the last seat but whose transfers could prove crucial Gary Gannon from the Sock Dems Alex uh, White from Mary Higgins the Independent um, Alex White from Labour Yeah if you look at 2014 um, Nessa Childers for example who was independent left formerly of the Labour Party but had departed company with the Labour Party at that stage uh, was behind both Eamon Ryan. She might even have been behind Paul Murphy as well. She was close to Paul Murphy, but she was definitely behind Eamon Ryan and definitely uh, behind Mary Fitzpatrick of, of Fianna Fáil, uh, but was able to to overtake them uh, towards the end um, by just accumulating transfers uh, as she went on. As Pat said, I mean, it's important. If, if you uh, have a critical uh, mass of votes that might get you there, uh, it's important just to stay ahead of your rival with every count. That's a, a very obvious thing. European elections are kind of slightly different from other elections. Uh, people see them almost as uh, discretionary spending. Fine Gael well. generally, in terms of seats, did well in the Europeans the last time out and in the locals did badly. So that's the kind of base mark from which they're approaching this one. They, yeah, th- they have an opportunity as a result, well, well, therefore, in the locals. Yeah, but you have to kind of come in. They did very well in 2009. So, uh, and Fianna Fáil did badly in 2009. So um, even though Fianna Fáil was seen to have recovered in 2014 in the local elections. There's a lot of just expectation management here, isn't there? Th- there is. I mean, Sinn Féin... There is, but there's also uh, the number... You know, the numbers are absolute. I mean, we can put context on them, but the numbers are absolute. So Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, both about 23, 24% in yep. the locals. Both will be hoping to uh, to make gains. Be well, a catastrophe for Fianna Gael if there wasn't... Uh, a uh, European election seat in Dublin. The party's getting like 30% in the polls in Dublin. In the the locals in in 2014, Fianna Fáil got 25.5% of the vote. 
Um, uh, but in the European elections, it only got about 17 or 18% of the vote, and that was distorted uh, by the Brian Crowley vote in South, which was a huge personal vote. I mean, it was a Brian Crowley vote rather than a Fianna Fáil one. So there is a kind of a difference in mindset uh, amongst voters going into European elections. Uh, at the local election, I would contend, would be more representative of how people might vote in a general yeah, election. I think that's true. Yeah, uh, yeah, ra- ra- rather than, than anything else. It also positions candidates and gives you an, an idea of local strength on the ground, which is, you know, the uh, always a vital part yeah. of... Uh, it's the traditional so, way in which parties who have had a bad political time would bounce back, isn't it, via uh, the local elections and then use that as a bounce into uh, the general. Yeah, and Europeans can as well. I mean, Fianna, Fianna Gael did very well in the 2004 European election. Uh, they had a terrible election in 20, uh, 2002 and they put a huge effort into the European election in particular in 2004 and they, they won a couple of high-profile seats and that gave the party a fillip uh, going into into 2006 and 2007. There's always a space in the Europeans, for example, for for kind of slightly, slightly left-of-field candidates that might not do so well in a general election. The Greens have usually done well in Europeans, but have never matched that performance in the past in, in, in locals. You see independents coming to the fore. Pat hasn't done Mid- Midlands Northwest, but, I mean, Peter Casey will, will certainly be in the reckoning there, sure. as will Luke Ming Flanagan. So if that happens, I think Matt Carty from Sinn Féin might find himself under a little bit of pressure. Oh, I'd be willing to take a wager on that one. I think. Well, his difficulty, difficulty. Feel free. Well, his his difficulty. He did. He did. He got one hundred and seventeen thousand votes in twenty fourteen, and um, got about sixteen or seventeen percent of the vote. But it wasn't particularly transfer friendly. I think he's he's he he was relatively unknown then, as was Leonie Reid and Lynn Boylan. But Sinn Fein's cachet has gone down a little bit. I think he will be further hampered by the fact that within six months of being elected, he will be resigning his seat, uh, if elected, and contesting uh, for the Doyle in Dub- in Cavan Monaghan. So I think he will be reminded of that again and again during the course of the campaign by his rivals. Whether it will have any uh, uh, resonance with voters uh, remains to be seen. But the main And the major challenger for that seat then would be Peter Casey? Th- Peter Casey, yes. I think Peter Casey is making all the right kind of noises. Um, that what does that mean? Well, for his constituency, he's been populist. He's kind of he's accumulated some dog whistles, which he's giving out about foreigners. Yeah, giving out about foreigners. So just to be clear, he did an interview with the Sunday Times last Sunday, in which he said a number of things about immigration. Mm. Uh, Among them, that kind of classic trope of we need to have a debate, and I'm just asking the question. But he also used the word freeloaders. I think in relation to people who are in direct provision centres. And he also questioned whether the country had enough, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I think I'm being unfair, resources to support further immigrants into the future. Yeah, he contradicts himself all the time because a few weeks ago he was giving out about the uh, facilities within direct provision centres, which he said were inhumane. So one week he seems to be kind of campaigning for those poor souls who are in direct provision centres and the next week he's describing them as, as freeloaders. So well, probably the more important point is a message has been sent to the electorate and the question is going to be whether the electorate is receptive to that message. Yes. And, and this will be an indication of how receptive it is and what direction part of our politics may take. And we've discussed this idea in this studio before about how you know, an anti-immigrant feeling that politicians all over Europe have tapped into, some of them have pandered to it, to what extent it exists uh, in this country and to what extent it could become a political dynamic and therefore an attractive platform for a new political force or a new political 
forces. And I think this campaign and the performance of Peter Casey, assuming he maintains this rhetoric throughout, which, as Harry says, he may be on something else this year. Uh, well, it is very, inco- it is very I, incoherent, I, I but, but we, are, we are well aware from other countries that incoherence is not a barrier to success, you know, in, in relation mm. to, to these kind of campaigns in particular. I mean, I mean, let me ask you something related to that, Pat, which is that, uh, I mean, we had Pater uh, Tobin in the studio a few weeks back. There was a report in our newspaper a couple of weeks ago about his views on immigration in which he said, I suppose, he said... A debate was needed on policy, uh, but he didn't say anything more than that. I heard Breed Smith talking to him on RTE. Breed Smith was suggesting that the space on the on a crowded political landscape where there was space for a party like Ain2, his new party, was one that took a harder line or that tapped into anti-immigration sentiment. I, something I should say that he 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 rejected. But we look more broadly outside Ireland at uh, at what's happened in these other countries and the space that has seemed to open up for the right populist parties across Europe and in the United States is um, economically to the left and socially to the right. Uh, and that's what's chipped away at the, at the previously, you know, successful social democratic parties and some of the conservative parties. And the question is, and I think there's some research to show I knew that, there was a question is, coming. is that space, is that space the available, that's that, you know, that's the green field for, for a new political movement to, to, to move into in Ireland as well, isn't it? We have no evidence thus far that there is a political appetite for a hard line on immigration. Uh, in this country. That's one of the things that will be interesting about this election because if Peter Casey continues with his anti-immigrant rhetoric and he does well, now, you know, I think anybody familiar with life in parts of rural Ireland could have told you that there is an anti-traveller feeling out there amongst many people. Uh, So his success in the presidential election perhaps wasn't that much of a uh, surprise with regard to that. But the immigrant thing hasn't really been tried before here. Now, if he tries it and it works or it doesn't work, it tells us something important, I think. There hasn't never been a specific party uh, in Ireland. I think various parties have uh, sounded the foghorn uh, over immigration. I think Fianna Fáil, uh, with the citizenship referendum in 2004, I think, the very um, hardline attitude it then took towards direct provision. And I mean, the direct provision centre, this remember they were always talking about the pull factor at the time, and we didn't want Ireland to be, you know, pulling in more uh, refugees and, and asylum seekers, uh, other countries, and they, they were taken uh, at the time. But against that, I mean, you see that there is a very tolerant societal attitude towards people emigrating into the country, not only from other European countries, but you see people coming in on student visas from Brazil and from China and then kind of staying indefinitely and just becoming, you know, absorbed uh, into the society. And even though a lot of those would be strictly speaking illegal, uh, there is a tolerance uh, to it. But um, parties have framed it in the same way that uh, Peter Casey is framing it, that we can't afford it. They're talking about a housing crisis. Uh, I've heard Aintu talking about that. You know, where where can we provide them with housing? You know, how many can we take in uh, without it uh, It, having an impact on the system? This is the electoral space which Sinn Féin occupies in terms of the people who who hold hold these views. Research has shown. Mm -hmm. So is there an opportunity for Aintu here? There there could be. uh, Sinn Féin, uh, Rory Costello did very interesting research after the 2016 election where he looked at the views of parties, the policies of parties and the views of their supporters. And the biggest gap was between Sinn Féin and its supporters. Uh, Sinn Féin is kind of politically kind of right on 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 all these issues where a lot of its supporters would have very strong 
uh, uh, there would be a strong anti-immigrant sentiment to be discerned amongst a certain section uh, of of I think of, she'd of a very conscious decision on that. And the sort of communities from which Sinn Féin draws its strongest support tend to be those communities where resources are tightest mm. and the demand on resources from new Irish or immigrants uh, is, uh, is strongest. But Sinn Féin's made a very conscious decision mm. to sit on that sentiment and to argue against it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, it is to be commended uh, for that. If you go um, canvassing with any politician in, in working class areas in Dublin, you'll always get a few people coming up who, are, who will be giving out about, about immigrants. Uh, and um, most politicians will either argue the toss with them or, or uh, ignore them. And they try f- for it not to be on, on the agenda. I think it's going to become increasingly not just a question of working class uh, urban areas as well. I mean, Sinn Féin support in Cavan, Monaghan, like, well, along the border counties in Donegal. These are places that had a substantial no vote in the, you know, the social issue referendums that we've had over the last, uh, absolutely. The last couple of years. Uh, and and you, you see it in middle class areas as well. The thing, thing is that middle class areas are kind of more clever at the way that they operate uh, nimbyism with travellers, with pubs, with direct provision centres. You know, they're far less evident in middle class areas, especially in Dublin, than elsewhere. Right, we should leave it there for today. We're going to be covering the elections in more depth than you may actually want over the next few weeks. But uh, before that, there is a bank holiday coming. So, so do enjoy that. Thanks very much to Harry, to Pat and to Amanda for joining us earlier. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be, and particularly on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We always welcome a good five-star positive review because it helps to get things out to a broader audience. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts, and your views are always very welcome. Uh, it's always great to get emails. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com, or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.